right. Good morning. Amen. Very good. I have a confession to make, and um, you all will have no choice but to deal with it. So here we go. My confession is I am a Baptist preacher. That's my confession. And so um, that's a very polite applause that you just gave me. Thank you for that. And so, but as a Baptist preacher, whenever I preach, I just assume I'm preaching to a Baptist congregation. And so you're Baptist today. So welcome, welcome to the fold. Um, but one thing about being a Baptist preacher growing up in my tradition is I tend to expect to hear an amen or a response. And so now if you don't respond, I'm gonna be all right. I'm gonna still preach. It's not gonna make me get done any faster. As a matter of fact, if you say amen, it will feel faster to you. And so, yeah, see? <laughs> Watch it now. Um, be careful with the spirit you're, you're speaking out of that one. All right, so, but we are, we are just so, so excited. I'm so excited to be here. And I praise God for the opportunity and honor Pastor Hunter, even in his absence. I want to thank you all for having me and all the leadership that's here. Um, my wife and children are here, and I'm grateful to God for them. So thank you, Camelia, for being here. Amen. We want to uh, really jump in now. I'm not much for preliminaries and introduction, and so let's take a look at our passage together, and then we'll pray. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, it reads... But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Let us pray together. Father, we pray that even right now you would meet with us I pray, Lord God, that you would speak to me and through me, Lord God. And I pray, Lord God, that you would prepare our hearts as good soil for the seed that you would plant. May that seed bring forth the fruit that you intend in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You know, in life, there are so many reasons and so many opportunities to feel hopeless. I don't know about you, but when I look at my bank account, I can look at my bank account and consider the numbers that are on the positive side, and I look at my bills, those are the num numbers on the negative side, and I can feel like, man, this is just not right. And even when I have more money in my bank than my bills, I just feel like, God, I know it's a blessing. I know this is awesome. You are providing, but, but it would be so much nicer if there were just some cushion, some room, and I can feel like, man, if something happened, if my car broke down, if my transmission fell out, if, if the, the house developed a leak in the roof, God, if that happened, man, my would be, I'd be stuck. I'd be in a bad situation. So many scenarios can cause us to feel hopeless. I have the opportunity to counsel with families, and I can hear the stories of pain and anguish and families, husbands or wives will come and say, pastor, this is what's going on and this is what they've done. And as I hear the story go on and on, 
I, even as the counselor, can start to feel like, man, this is just jacked up, and this is terrible, and this is hopeless. I mean, the way they describe it, the way they present it, there is not a single shred of goodness in any of it. And it's just full of despair and darkness. And I can counsel with students at times, and they'll say, Pastor, I'm, I'm studying, but I don't get it. I'm reading, but I don't understand. I go to class and the teacher speaks and it's just like confusion coming to my ears. I don't understand. There are five tests and I failed the first two. There's no way I can pass this course. I'm gonna fail, I'm gonna flunk out, I'm gonna be expelled, I'm not gonna be able to have a career. Pastor, I am desperate and there's no hope. Well, for some of us, it's a career that we spent years and years training for and studying, doing on-the-job training, and we got good at it. We finally got good at something, and then the economy changes. Our job got shipped somewhere else, and here we are, much too old to learn something new and much too young to retire, and we have no clue what we're going to do that kind of uncertainty. But maybe it's not financial or family or academic or career. Maybe it's your health. And this one can hurt a lot because we can feel like, man, I've been sick so long. I don't know what it's like to be well. I've been sick so long and this chronic condition, the doctors have even said it's incurable. The doctors have said, the doctors have said, all we can do is try to make you comfortable, but there's nothing we can do. There's no hope for a cure. There's no hope that this will be fixed. We can just try to make these days that you have bearable. And with all of these circumstances and all of these scenarios that drive us to a place of hopelessness, the truth is, is that the scenarios themselves are a heavy burden, but honestly, our knowledge, our so-called understanding compounds the problem. Because when my problem is financial, it's one thing when I have a financial problem, because I'm not the wisest person when it comes to money or have been particularly trained in that. But when I'm talking to someone and they're a CPA, and they know, they say to me, Pastor, I'm a CPA. I know my assets, I know my liabilities, I know my investment portfolio, I know my return on investment for the last three years. And so, that, so I know there is no way I won't end up bankrupt. See, our knowledge can compound our hopelessness. Sometimes in the relationships, we say, Pastor, you don't know, I've known my mother my entire life. This is just the way she is. I've known my husband for 27 years. This is the way he is. I know how they are. They won't change. They don't care. They'll never understand. They don't want to understand. And so I know there's no way this relationship can be saved. It's hopeless. See, the circumstance can be a heavy burden, but then when we add our so-called knowledge to that circumstance, it becomes even heavier, and we are left at a place of being hopeless. 
And this hopelessness leads to ill effects. It leads to ill effects in our lives and even in our bodies. We have issues with our stomachs. We end up with ulcers. We end up depressed. We get high blood pressure. We have insomnia. We can't sleep at night. You would be surprised at how often I hear from people, Pastor, I don't know the last time I had a good night of sleep. This burden has been so heavy. This trouble has been so tough. The situation is so hopeless. And sometimes the hopelessness ends up resulting in anger toward others. Someone says good morning to us, and we say, what's so good about it? Someone says good afternoon, whatever. Because our hopelessness, our anger, our frustration with life has left us at a place where we in and of ourselves are just through and done. But what I want to talk to us about today is not just the effect that hope has on your personal sanity. Listen, hope is not just about your personal sanity. Hope is not just so you can feel better. I don't want to preach a sermon today about hope so that you just feel better. I want you to feel better. But that's not the only thing that hope should do. As a believer, the hope that we have should demand a response from those around us. It should demand a response from those around us. In other words, those that we live with, we work with, we associate with, should be attracted to or at least intrigued by the hope that we have. How do I know that? Because look at the passage. Peter says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, you should live your life in such a way and the hope in you should cause you to live your life in such a way that people look at you and say, what is it that you know that I don't? This job, this company is falling apart. There have been layoffs after layoffs, and yet you still seem okay. What do you know that I don't know? What reason for hope do you have? The hope that we have should cause us to have a platform to speak to people. It should become a catalyst for evangelism. It should become a catalyst for someone asking us about this crazy hope we have. As a matter of fact, it ought to look stupid to people. To people who don't know the Lord, the hope that we have should cause us to look like we're unaware of what's happening. Do you not know that the company is closing? Do you not know that your health is falling apart? Do you not know that your finances are nearly down to nothing? Has anyone clued you in that you're in trouble? Has anyone clued you in that you have a problem, a big problem, an insurmountable problem? Has anyone given you a clue of the circumstance that you're in? And so the hope 
that we have should cause, should demand this kind of response. It should cause people to want to know what we know. As a matter of fact, the passage says, we need to be prepared to make a defense effectively for this hope, to defend our reason for the hope. It should cause people to be like, what are you thinking about? What are you ignoring? What are you considering? Usually when we talk about apologetics and giving this reason for the hope, usually we're talking about proofs, arguments, and historical evidence. Proofs that the earth was not created randomly. Proofs that we did not get here by accident. Proofs that Jesus really lived and walked the earth. Proofs that Jesus died on the cross and was buried in a tomb, but proof that he rose again. And often we talk about apologetics, it's the, we talk about arguments and historical evidence to help us to know that the Bible is true and the Bible can be depended on. But what I want to say today is that all of the proofs and arguments and historical evidence, while they have their place, all of these things fall flat when we don't live with the hope we are to have as believers. What do I mean? If someone looks at your life and looks at your attitude toward life and you are more hopeless than they are, why should they care about any proof that you have that God is real? If you look more worried, if your Facebook posts communicate more concern and worry about life and about your future than your unbelieving neighbors, then why should anyone care about the hope that you have? And more, more than that, why should they care about any argument you can make? Laying out how God is real, Jesus really did rise from the dead, the Bible is true. All of those proofs and arguments and historical evidence fall flat when we don't live with the hope that we're to have as believers. So what is this hope? What do we mean by hope? Usually when we use the word hope in today's language, it means wishful thinking. Like, I hope the Steelers win the Super Bowl. Amen. Amen. Now, if the Spirit of God in you agrees with something I say, you ought to say, Amen. And if the Spirit of God in you does not agree, then you can be quiet. But if it's your own spirit, if it's your own spirit that's causing you not to respond with an Amen, then you need to, you know, ask yourself a question or two. We would say, I hope that Ben Roethlisberger throws for 5,000 yards next year. I hope that Le'Veon Bell runs for it. Now, these are Steelers players. Someone in the room is like, who's Ben Roethlisberger and who's Le'Veon Bell? These are players for the Steelers, the team that you should know about. And so I hope that Le'Veon Bell, the running back for the Steelers, runs for 2,000 yards next year. And I hope the defense is better than they were last year. Amen. Amen. 
And so when we use the word hope, that's typically the way we use it. I hope this works out. I hope this turns out good. I hope. Now there are 32 teams in the NFL. There are 31 cities that are other than this, and then other than Pittsburgh that are rooting for their teams. Now only one team is going to win the Super Bowl next year. So everybody was hoping their team would win, but 31 out of 32 cities are going to be disappointed in that kind of hope. That's not the hope that Scripture talks about. When Scripture uses the word hope, it refers to a strong and confident expectation, a certainty, a rock-solid belief, a knowledge that something is going to happen. There's a show called The Undercover Boss, comes on CBS, and I watched one of the four or five shows that our family watched. And so that show is basically about a CEO or president of a corporation who goes undercover in their own company to work at an entry-level job. And the goal for them is to learn how to, learn how to make their company better by observing how people really do their work. At the beginning of the show, they'll show the, the president or CEO and show the, the house where they live and the family they live with. And it's a beautiful house. The cars that they drive are beautiful cars. The clothes they wear are awesome clothes. I mean, they have just, it's wonderful lives. The life, the life of a CEO of a major corporation in America. And so you watch the show and you see, you kind of see how they live and then they go undercover. They put on this disguise. They put on a fake beard or mustache or longer hair or shorter hair or whatever the case might be. And they go undercover into their jobs. One of the first episodes was the CEO of Waste Management went undercover to be a sanitation worker. And on his first assignment, he was yelled at, criticized, and ultimately fired <laughs> on his first assignment. Now, as you're watching the show, the reaction that he has to being yelled at and criticized and fired is not the reaction you and I would have had if we were being criticized, yelled at, and fired. I don't know about you, but if I'm on my job and my boss begins to yell at me and criticizes me, and ultimately fires me, I might respond like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, give me, a, give me another chance. Are you serious? Well, time out, wait, no, seriously. Give me, let me come in tomorrow and make this. But this undercover boss, he just takes it in, man. He just takes it and he just walks on. You know why? Because he has a hope. He has a certainty about his life. He knows that being an entry-level employee at Waste Management is not his real life. He knows that he's going to ultimately, at the end of this week, go back home to his nice house, back to his nice car, back to his beautiful family, and he's going to be the CEO of his company. And so regardless of the criticism, regardless of the abuse, regardless of being yelled at and fired, he knows what his future is. He has hope. He's not hoping he can still be the CEO. He's not hoping he gets to go back to his house. He knows where his house is. He knows the car that he has. He knows the job that he has. 
There's a certainty that he has. So as he's going through these assignments and with all of the criticism, with all of the abuse that he might be taking, he can take it because he has this certainty about his future. And the truth of the matter is, is that often we're going through life and the way we react to our circumstances would let someone know that we're not certain about our future. We flip out when something bad happens. We want to scream out and yell out when things don't go our way. We want to act like our lives are dependent on this thing working out. And because it hasn't worked out, everything is done. When we live that way, we're living without the hope that God would have us to have this certainty, this strong and confident expectation. That's the hope we're talking about in Scripture. So what is our hope as Christians? Our hope as Christians is the coming kingdom of God. And more than just the coming kingdom of God like some far off thing, it's the notion or the, the, not just the notion, it's the truth that the kingdom of God is in me already. That as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a follower of his, the kingdom of God is not some far off reality, but it's already in me and living in me and operating in me. So my hope is this coming kingdom of God. And more than that, it is the idea that God is going to make everything all right. That God is going to make it right. He's going to fix whatever's broken. He's going to correct whatever's wrong. Whatever pain there is, he's going to alleviate. Whatever tears there are, he's going to wipe away. God is going to make everything right. And I believe this is why the, the prophet says, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked places made straight, the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord come. And I know that that's my hope. My hope is that God is going to make it right. So when things are crazy, I don't have to look like the craziness I'm going through. When things are ridiculous, I don't have to be ridiculous with the ridiculousness I'm going through. I heard someone say, I've been through the fire, but I don't smell like smoke. I don't have to reflect the craziness. I don't have to reflect the terrible circumstances that I'm living through. Why? Because I know that God is going to make everything right. So this hope that I have, this hope that God is going to make everything right leads to a crazy kind of service. A crazy service. What do I mean by that? Well, look at the context of this passage. First Peter is a letter written to people who were suffering. It's written to a dispersed group of believers through all the various parts of the, the known world that were suffering. And in this book, in chapter two, 
Peter addresses them and says, now in regards to the governmental authorities that are over you, which by the way would not have been Christian, would not have been nice, would not have been favorable toward Christians, regarding them, obey them. More than just obey them, be subject to them and honor the emperor. That's what Peter says to these folks who are going through this suffering. And the suffering that they're experiencing, experience is not because of any sin they had done, but merely because they were Christians. And he says, I want you to have an attitude of humility toward the emperor. And then in verse 18 of chapter two, he says to slaves, slave, obey your master. And he doesn't just say obey the masters that treat you well and the masters that follow the Lord. As a matter of fact, he says, even if your master is not a good master, even if they are not righteous, you should still serve them well. You should still serve them in the right kind of way. And then he says to wives in chapter three, to be submissive to your husbands, even if your husband's not a believer, perhaps your good life will help him to come to the Lord. Now, let me be very clear, and I don't have time to preach this message. This is not a, Peter is not saying that people should stay in abusive relationships. Amen? Amen. So if you're here or you're hearing this, that is not Peter's point. The point of this is, is that we should live our lives in a way that honors the Lord first and honors those that we're subject to. And it is not to God's honor that you be beaten. Amen? Amen. But the point of the matter is, not every bad husband is an abusive husband. There are some lousy husbands. And a lousy husband that's not abusive, Peter is saying, would you please honor him and serve him and be submissive to him and perhaps in your life of hope, in your life of righteousness before him, he will come to know. And so this is the context in which, in which Peter is speaking when he says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. It's in this context of suffering and suffering at the hands of people who ought not be suffered at. It's, we should not allow them to do this. It's not right that they do this. We're not being treated well. They have authority over us on some degree and they're treating us poorly and we're supposed to respond to them in a positive way. And so this crazy service, and that's why I call it crazy, because it would seem crazy to them. I treat you poorly and you still serve me. I treat you poorly and you still honor me. It's crazy and it should cause them to say to us, why do you do that? I know that I'm not good to you. I know that I'm, I'm oppressing you in the case of the emperor. I know that I'm not treating you well in the case of the master who is slave. I know that I've not been loving as I should in the case of a husband to his wife. I know that. But yet, here you are treating me so well. 
So this crazy service becomes an entree into evangelism. It gives us this opportunity to evangelize where we would not otherwise have this opportunity. You know, it's interesting, usually when we talk about service giving us an opportunity to evangelize, we talk about people who are often in positions that are in need, that we can help. So we'll go to a soup kitchen, we'll go to a homeless shelter, we'll go to a home for at-risk teen mothers, and we'll serve them because they need it and we're in a position of power to help them. But in this case, Peter is saying, not just when you're in the position of power, but when you're in the submissive position, the hope that you have should cause those who are in power over you to come to you and ask you about that hope. You see, so service is not just a way to evangelize to those who are desperate in need, but service is a way to evangelize even to those who would consider themselves to be higher than us. And more specifically, in relationships when we are oppressed and facing injustice. So with all of that said, Peter makes, makes the point that we should be ready to give this defense, and when we give it, we should give it with gentleness and respect. Because the same humility that you showed leading up to them asking you about your faith or about your hope, that same humility should be used and shown in gentleness and respect when explaining it. So for example, if it's the husband that's come around and says, honey, I, I know that I've been terrible and you've been so gracious to me, what's that about? The response ought not be, well, I'm glad you finally asked. I'm glad you took notice. Well, the Lord has blessed me, and I'm just hoping that one day you'll realize, like, that's not gentle. <laughs> that's probably not respectful. When I have this opportunity to present the, my faith and my hope to someone who's in this position of power, or anyone for that matter, I should do it with gentleness and respect. And so the question finally comes, what is the reason for your hope? You know, honestly, at the end of the day, it's not about proofs, it's not about arguments, it's not about apologetics. When we live our lives in this kind of way with this hope that causes us to live life that says, I know what my future is. I know that I'm in the midst of craziness, but I don't have to be crazy. I know that I'm in the midst of ridiculousness, but I don't have to be ridiculous. And I can have confidence in the future. When I live my life that way, and someone asks me, why do I have that hope? The answer is not going to be, I can show you that God is real, that Jesus really raised from the dead. That's really not going to be the answer. My answer is going to be, because God did something in me. Because one day, my life was hopeless. One day, I was without a chance. I was without hope, and God rescued me. God found me where I was and snatched me by the back of my neck and stood me up. That's what happened. That's why I have, that's my reason. My reason is not just that I can prove that the Bible's true and that God is real and Christ raised from the dead. The truth is my reason is my testimony. What has God done in my life? And guess what? My testimony is not just that God rescued me, 
But every now and then the kingdom of God that is coming breaks through in my life. And when the doctor said there was no hope, I'm cured. When my finances said I'd be broke, a windfall comes. When my children have lost their minds and I believe there's no hope, God rescues them. Every now and then that kingdom of God power breaks through in my life. And I've got a new testimony, a new song to sing. Peter was talking to people who were suffering wrongly. And when we're suffering wrongly, we can just get so frustrated and angry. It's one thing if I do a bad job and I get yelled at. But when I'm doing a good job and get yelled at for what someone else did, man, that makes it so hard. So hard to have gentleness and respect. So hard to have hope. The ultimate example of injustice is when an innocent person is punished for the wrongs of another. And when I'm innocent and I'm punished for the wrongs of another, I can lose hope. But I want you to know that justice prevails. The best example of an innocent person being punished for the wrongs of another would be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was on the cross dying a death he did not deserve to die. Blood running out of his hands and his feet. He was pierced in his side. The blood and water rushed out. He was dead. He died for you and he died for me. The innocent for the guilty. The righteous for the unrighteous. And he was placed in a tomb and the tomb was sealed. But early on a Sunday morning, Christ was raised from the dead. Why? Because death no longer has mastery over him. Why? Because death had no business grabbing him. Because he ought not have died. He ought not have been punished. Why? Why does that happen? Because God is a God of justice. God is a God that makes things right. And when the tomb was opened, the kingdom of God broke through and Christ was raised to new life. And the same God of justice will make things right for you, will make things right for me. My hope is not that a specific outcome will happen, but my hope is that the God of justice will make everything right. And every now and then he makes it right on this side of the grave, but I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if he doesn't make it right on this side of the grave, he'll make it right on the other side of the grave. And I will be all right. And everything will be made right. That's the hope we have. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, God, because you are a God of hope. You're a God who makes things right, a God of justice. The kingdom of God is upon us, Lord God, is within us. And God, we look forward to the day. We look forward to the day when it is fully consummated, when all things are made right, when valleys are exalted and hills brought low, crooked, straight, and rough places made plain. God, we look forward to that day. I pray, Lord God, that as we live in this kind of hope, that we would live 
before other people in such a way that they ask us about the hope that we have. And then, Lord God, I pray that they would hear our testimony, that they would hear and receive that you are God who saved us from hopeless situations. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to share our testimony with others. In Jesus' name, amen.